Um, We're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. And last week we left off in chapter 4, Pastor Andrew shared about the woman at the well. And then immediately on the heels of that, we have two of the miraculous signs in the book of John. We have the um, healing of the official son and the um, healing at the pool of Bethesda. And you might remember last October, we actually studied those two stories. So I can't get away. I know you guys, your memory is too sharp. I thought maybe I can just give her that sermon again. (laughs) I was like, nah, they'd probably remember. And then I'd have to have a board meeting and stuff like that. So we won't do that. So we're going to, if you are really, those are awesome stories, and they do add a lot to the context of even what we're going to be talking about this morning, um, but if encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons again or, or spend some time in those just in your own study. But we're going to be in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 29 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then uh, we'll dive in. And this, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is referencing back to Jesus' healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Remember, he says, take up your mat and walk. And of course, that was a violation of Jewish Sabbath law. And so they're upset with him over uh, his attitude towards the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, and I want you to pay close attention to this sentence. We're going to spend some time on this sentence this morning. My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Human beings love stories. Uh, This is just a fact, I think. It seems to be universally true. I think this is why Jesus peppered his teaching so liberally with parables. If you read through the gospel accounts and Jesus' teaching, almost every teaching he has is punctuated by storytelling. When we're being taught a truth, it is made more accessible, and it's easier to digest and retain when it is illustrated with a story. 
our minds just seem to have an easier time interacting with it and holding on to it. And we have an easier time feeling the emotional force of the truth. Not just understanding the truth intellectually, but feeling its weight and significance when it is conveyed through a story. I think this is why the stories of the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den, the prodigal son, those kinds of stories, are filed away in our minds in such vivid detail. But the content of books like Leviticus, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, they're not outlined in our mind as automatically as the stories. They're more idea-heavy. They're about doctrines. They're about truths that are not attached necessarily to story. And so our minds just have a harder time holding on to it, digesting it, interacting with it. Now, the trouble with our text for this morning is that it does not come to us in the form of a story. Uh, Verses 19 through 23, I'm willing to bet most of you, as I was reading, just of necessity kind of checked out a little bit. (laughs) Eyes were kind of glazing over. There's a lot of talk in there, and some of it's really hard to understand quite frankly. Um, You really have to like say, whoa, 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 slow down, Jesus. I don't understand a word you're saying. I have to really work my way slowly through these words so I can understand them and process them. Maybe that's not true for you. It's true for me. Uh, And I'm willing to bet it's true for lots of people. There's lots of truth there. It's wonderful truth. It's excellent truth. It's worth spending the time on, but it is just a little less accessible than if it were a story. If I asked all of you right now to raise your hands if you like Jesus, I bet that most of us would. After all, we're Christians. Jesus is kind of our thing, right? But if I asked you all to raise your hands if you loved theology, uh, there would still be some hands, but not as many. Uh, Some people really do love theology. That's their thing. They're kind of wonkish. And some people would probably raise their hands because they think that's probably the right answer, and maybe this is a preacher gotcha trap, like if you don't raise your hand, you're a bad person or something. (laughs) We're not going to raise hands, don't worry. But I have just noticed that um, people generally like, it's a bit like this, like what if I said, how many of you like Skittles? Uh, Yeah, people would be like, yeah, Skittles are good, that's a delicious candy. You feel the zing right here in the back of your jaw when you chew them. They're not good for you, I know, but they do taste good. But then it's like, well, how many of you like hydrogenated palm kernel oil? Or yellow five, yellow six, (laughs) carnauba wax, sodium citrate. Well, all those things go into the making of a Skittles. But you're like, I like Skittles. I just don't get into the details much, (laughs) And so some of you are like, I like Jesus, but I just don't get into the details much. Theology. Some people do really get into it. I I get that. That's not everybody. But here I'm speaking to those for whom it's enough that I like Jesus. I don't really need to study all the details. In my experience, some people in in the church seem to think of theology as kind of an egghead pursuit. How many angels can you fit on the pin of a needle? That kind of a thing. It's almost like how, remember when we were all back in school? We were all students in school, but there were some students who were nerds, right? (laughs) 
And here we are, we're all in church. I'm not assuming we're all Christians, but let's say we're all here in church. Some of us are Christians, but some of us are this species of Christian nerd called a theologian, right? Nerds in school are students who really care about their studies. And Christian nerds, theologians, are those guys who really care, or gals, who really care about theology. They really get in, they really care about their studies a lot. So some people, I think, kind of think of it like that. Other people seem to hold a suspicion that theology is a divisive thing. An undue emphasis on theology, getting everything just so, having an understanding, classifying, wrestling with these things. It really just leads to unity, disunity, contentious debate. People can be very tribal, can't they? People can be very much into labeling people. And Christians are not immune to this. So sometimes when somebody asks us a theological question, it feels not so much like an honest inquiry or an honest attempt to explore the truth. It can feel like an invitation to debate or worse, an effort to classify you. Not, it's like, are you my kind of a person almost? It feels icky sometimes. So some of us may have developed an almost instinctive distaste for theology because it feels like that. However, here's something about theology that I think we should all know. Most of you probably don't think of yourselves as a theologian, but you are. Theology simply means your understanding of God. It's the study of God. We may be lazy theologians. We may be poorly formed as a theologians, as a theologian. We may hold our convictions as a theologian with a nasty, contentious spirit. All that may be true, but you are theologians nevertheless. You're a theologian this morning because you have a theology. You have ideas about where everything came from, who or what God is, and if he exists. You see, even if you don't believe in God, you're a theologian. You have ideas about God. You have ideas about how we can know our purpose. Your theology shapes how you live vertically in relationship to God and horizontally in relationship to your fellow man. It shapes your inner world. It governs your behavior, what you say yes to, what you say no to. And most importantly, it is through theology that you have answered that greatest question that hangs over all human beings, who is Jesus and what is his significance? Now, there are two reasons to pursue a deepening theology. There's two reasons why we tackle passages like this one, which would be easy to skip right over and get on to the next story, right? One is I think that a shallow faith is easily uprooted. We are called to be holy as God is holy, which means that although we live in the world and engage with the world and love the world, we remain separate and distinct from it. But it is always disastrous when worldly ways and attitudes permeate the church and corrupt our worship. The truths that have been entrusted to us as Christians are the most precious and needed truths on the planet. 
Brothers and sisters, I hope you don't think I'm engaging in hyperbole when I say that. It is absolutely 100% 100 true. I was recently talking to somebody about uh, lying. I won't tell you the context, (laughs) but we were talking about lying, and I made the statement, and I believe it with all my heart, above all, Christians must be believable, because above all, we must be believed, right? Believers must be believable because we must be believed. I really think Christians have been given to steward the most important essential truths on the planet, that which is most needed. And if we simply content ourselves with a simple faith that is not coupled with maturity in God's word, we will find ourselves inevitably shoved off our feet and being shaped more and more by the culture than by God's word. There is a current that is flowing against your heart and your mind. And we are always in this fallen world striving against that current. And if we are not actively striving to go deeper with God, we will float in the opposite direction. If you stop, you don't hold your place. The current carries you away. And so there is this sense, I think, in which um, pursuing Christ, I I, I always want to dance this line very carefully, where that which is most needed and essential in Christianity is so simple, even the most limited intellect can grasp it. Christianity is not for the brilliant at all. Thank God. God, literally. <laughs> I would have no, 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 no place in this if that were true. But there are pools that are so deep that even the greatest human intellect can dive in and swim around and never get to the bottom of it. I'm telling you, no matter where a human being is intellectually, they can enter into and enjoy God in Christianity. That which is most essential is so easily grasped. The gospel is not complicated. It is not difficult to understand, but it is exact. And when we get into the gospel truth and the Bible and all that surrounds it, there are pools in there that are really deep where if you just are a thinker, you can get in there and swim around, and it is deep. There's a lot of depth in the Bible. Here's a passage out of Hebrews 5. It says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." That word there, child, that he uses is actually infant. He's describing somebody who's a nursing infant. And the hope that as you're nursing a baby is that that baby would mature and grow to a place where he'd be weaned, she, he or she would be weaned onto solid food. And that they would even then grow to the place where you don't have to cook for them at all, they're getting their own food. That's my hope as a parent, right? <laughs> they're not always eating my food. I don't always have to cook them stuff. Maybe someday my kids would make me food, right? This would be great. So this is the hope. And, but what that the author of Hebrews is complaining about is, my goodness, you're still nursing. By this time, you should be feeding other people. You've not progressed. 
you, you have a basic but true understanding of what's needed, the gospel, but you have not gone deeper, and you ought to. You should be a theologian, more of a theologian. Well, you are a theologian, but you're kind of a lazy one. You're content to be spoon-fed stuff by somebody else. You ought to be feeding others by now. Of course, when trials come, it's important to hold a personal theology that's not superficial. When we're shaken by tragedy, it's very important that our roots of faith and understanding go deep. However, it is also true that material prosperity and blessings are perhaps even more poisonous to the soul than tragedy and catastrophe. And this is a matter of special concern, I believe, for the American church. Think of it, if you took all the population of planet Earth and you condensed it down to 100 representative people, six of them would be Americans, and we have 50% of all the world's wealth. Think about that. And that is disastrous on the soul. Ease and comfort, it's much easier to forget God in the midst of that than in the midst of horrible trials. Uh, this, is, uh, this was said of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Do you see that, that principle there? It wasn't a trial that caused Uzziah to walk away from God. It was strength, abundance, comfort, success. Deuteronomy 6 says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, there's really a principle here, I think, for the necessity of the American church having a deepening theology, which is this, that I am in that generation that's driving on interstates that my generation didn't build. I'm living in the midst of prosperity, the foundations of which go back to a previous generation. I'm living in the midst of a, a land where the system of laws and the infrastructure and the freedoms we enjoy are inherited from previous generations. And in the midst of that, are Americans going to forget God? Well, I think statistically, yes. That is certainly happening. We're seeing this play out among our people, the Americans. But I think, frighteningly, it's also happening among that special people within a people, the church. So that's, I think, one reason why we should enjoy passages like this one, which I promise we will get to briefly at the end. <laughs> I'm going on a bit of a rant this morning. Is that okay? Right. Um, but there's one other reason why I think we should in go deeper with theology. I'll do this very quickly. Do you guys remember that scene? Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. There's two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're joined by a third person who they don't at first recognize. But this person, we're told, opens the scriptures to them. 
Now, they've just come from Jerusalem where Jesus has been crucified, and they're unbelievably crestfallen. They're just, they're, they're rocked by this event. They're going home. And as they're talking, they're talking about Jesus. We even thought he was the Messiah. And this person who is Jesus, by the way, but they don't recognize him as Jesus. Um, and then we read in Luke 24, 32, it says this, they said to each other, this is after they realized that it was Jesus they'd been talking to. It says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There's that, there's that sense in which your hearts burn within you. Theology is for your enjoyment. I want you to believe that this morning, that when we hang out with Jesus, when we go deeper with him, when we strive to understand him better, you will enjoy him more. This is not just about pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's good for you, take your pill. <laughs> it's not like that. I'm telling you, eat Skittles, not take pills. This is enjoyable. Your hearts will burn within you as you enjoy God in the midst of his word and as you learn about him more. I want to close this morning by directing your attention to two theological truths that we pull out of this passage that I hope will cause our theological roots to go deeper and which will also cause our hearts to burn within us in just pure enjoyment of Jesus, who he is. That's all. I want us just to enjoy God this morning. He's amazing. He's wonderful. He's excellent. He's satisfying. And I hope we can do that. Uh, Let me just pause and pray before we dive in here. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray by the Holy Spirit that you would help us enter into this time in a way that we could enjoy you in it. God, open our eyes to see, the eyes of our heart, that we can see and enjoy you here in the midst of your word. Uh, The In our text for this morning, there are really two bones of contention between Jesus and his critics. The first is that he is seemingly breaking the Sabbath laws of Judaism. This is their chief complaint about Jesus following the healing at the pool of Bethesda. But then he he explains his treatment of the Sabbath by saying, which by the way, if you're not familiar with the Sabbath, uh, in Genesis, God created the world in six days and then on the seventh day he rested. And so that's a law that God then instituted. We encounter this law in the Ten Commandments, for example, that on the seventh day you rest. And so, but what what in the milieu of the religion of Judaism, what they had done was they had added loads of onerous laws on top of that. Like, almost like here's the point where, here's the point where you break the law, so we're going to build a fence way back here so that you never even approach the point where you break the law. But what this became was an onerous burden on the people that God never intended. But on top of that, Jesus says here something that's very provocative and that was wildly offensive to the people he was talking to. He makes the claim that he's equal to God. He says, as my father is working, even so I am working. And that may not seem like he's making that claim to us, but it's clear from the text that this is not lost on the people he's talking to. They immediately conclude he's doing this. And we'll get into why in just a minute. But the first issue, the Sabbath breaking, caused them to begin persecuting Jesus, we're told in verse 16. But then in verse 18, we see that they begin planning his murder because he's claiming to be equal with God. 
And the thing that Jesus said in verse 17 that brings both his way of treating the Sabbath and his claims to deity together into one brazen, provocative, and unapologetic statement is, my father is working until now, and I am working. So here are the two theological truths that we should draw out of these verses this morning. There are more. There's loads in here we could spend time on. We could probably spend months of Sundays here on just this passage. But let's focus on just these two this morning. These verses provide us with a portrait of the Creator at work. And also, amazingly, the Creator who so loved His creation that He became a created thing in order to save creation. First, let's talk about the Creator at work. Jesus said, my father is working till now and I am working. Today, uh, we commonly refer to God as our father. In fact, if you grew up in a church that recites the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, that begins with our father who art in heaven. But it's important to know that as common as that is in the church today, that was not a common form of expression in Judaism at that time. No Jew ever spoke of God directly as my father. It just wasn't done. And I think that's lost on us a little bit because our own context sees no scandal in addressing God as father. But this was Jesus' preferred way of describing himself in relationship to God. You, You could refer to God abstractly as the father, but if you claimed him personally as your dad, You were claiming to be master of the household with him. You were claiming divinity. And that is what Jesus was doing because, of course, that's who Jesus is. And this was not lost on the Jews, which is why verse 18 makes it plain that they felt Jesus was making himself equal to God with the way that he was speaking. Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. We're one entity, we're one being, we're one Godhead, those separate persons. He said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. It's John 17. Jesus made very provocative statements which were wildly offensive to the religious sensibilities of Judaism at that time because he was claiming divinity constantly. And they wanted to kill him for it, which, if he was not God, would make sense. Eventually, he taught his disciples to address God as Father also. But even in that case, his relationship to God as Father and their relationship to God as Father were different. This is why I think when he spoke to Mary Magdalene after being raised from the dead, he said, "'Go to my brothers and say to them, "'I am ascending to my Father and your Father.'" to my God and your God, said that in John 20. He did not say to our Father or to our God. I think so close was Jesus' connection with God that he, he equated a person's attitude to himself with his attitude to God. Thus, to know Jesus was to know God. To see him was to see God. To believe in him was to believe in God. To receive him was to receive God. To hate him is to hate God. And to honor him was to honor God. 
So here's how this relates to the issue of the Sabbath. When Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, I think that what is being implied is something like this. You might remember John began his gospel by telling us that the work of creation described in Genesis was done through Jesus. Jesus is the creator. So he and the Father created a perfect world. Over six days, they created all that is out of nothing. And then once they were done creating, they rested, not in the sense that they became tired and needed a break, but they stepped back, as it were, and enjoyed the perfect display of their own glory revealed in their creative handiwork. This is really, in its purest essence, what Sabbath was meant to be. The restful, focused enjoyment of God. That's what Sabbath is. But then, of course, something terrible happened. Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve decided it would be better to try and be God than to trust in God. So they ate the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, all of creation, which had reflected like a mirror the perfection and excellence of who God is, broke and fell into a zillion jagged little broken pieces. Through sin came sickness and every kind of nastiness and death. And from that moment until now, God has been at work. Why is he at work? He's at work now for the same reason he was at work in those first six days of creation. To restore creation into a reflection of himself that his glory might shine in it. It would be strange, I think, (laughs) if if you've ever had a project that broke, uh, something just went horribly wrong, Um, for then that creation to speak back to you, what are you doing working? We have a rule that when everything's perfect, you stop working (laughs) so you can enjoy it. In the midst of this rubble of brokenness, and nastiness. And so they're speaking to God, Jesus, saying it's against our law that you would work to restore this mess that we've made. And Jesus says, my father has been working and I am working. And I think they're working for the same reason, which is to restore and redeem From that moment until now, God has gone back to work to restore and redeem this fallen world that he might once again be glorified in it. So Jesus speaks as the creator to announce that he is doing a creative work. When Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda and intentionally did it on the Sabbath, he is really showing us something about himself. What was happening at the pool of Bethesda was that he and his father were revealing the world that is coming. It's a world in which there will be no sickness, a world in which there will be no sin. My father is working until now, and I am working. He's making all things new. We have already talked on previous Sundays in connection, about this in connection to the idea of being born again. When Christians say they're born born again, they're describing a work of creation that has been wrought in in their inner person. And this is a work of creation that's being described. And why does he do this work of creation in us? Well, 
Why does he make you born again? He does that that he might be glorified in us. Which is to say that the beauty and excellence of who he is would be made visible in our lives. Him shining in us. Of course, it's also to save us. Uh, Apart from Christ, we have no hope. Sin and death are still masters over us. And so in being born again, we have the capacity to live eternally. Well, the great news is, is that although God the Father and Jesus the Son are at work, we are called to rest. This is the interesting thing about Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus says, I'm at work, you rest. This is also a wonderful theological truth that Christians need to have sink deep down into their hearts. In coming to Christ, we are bid to come and rest. Not in the sense that we do do no work for the kingdom, that we're not evangelists, that we don't do our best. But as I'm saying, what he's talking about here is that trying to earn your salvation, you can't do it. You can't work your way into heaven. You can never, through good works, leverage God where he owes you something. It's not like that. Jesus has done everything that's necessary on the cross. He died on the cross, thereby doing all that's necessary for you to be made right with God. And so when he's talking to these people, um, these, um, these men, following the healing at the Pool of Bethesda, and they're charging him with working on the Sabbath, these are guys who are really trying to work their way into heaven. And Jesus says, I'm the one who works. You need to rest. <laughs> You need to rest in the finished work. You need to rest in trust, in faith, in belief. You see, in the Garden of Eden, to go all the way back to creation, when this whole thing went wrong, the sin that Adam and Eve committed was believing. Remember, Satan came to them and said, did God really say if you eat of this fruit, you'll die? You will not die. You'll be like God. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. And so they decided in that moment, when they ate of the fruit, the sin that they committed was believing it would be better if we could be gods than trusting in God. And so what happens in people's hearts and minds today is they think, wouldn't it be better if I could save myself than having to trust in a Savior? It's the same poisonous lie. And it's the lie that had crept into Judaic religious practice They didn't want to trust in a Savior. They wanted to shoulder the burden of their own salvation. I can be good. I can work super hard. I can keep all the commands. All the do's, I'm going to do. All the don't do's, I'm not going to do. And in the end of it all, I will have saved myself. It's better to be my own Savior than trust in one. It's the same sin that Adam and Eve committed. And so when Jesus says, I'm working... I'm working to redeem and restore, to save. He is not calling us to also work at saving ourselves. He is calling us to trust, to rest in his work and what he has done. This brings us to our last thought, which is that the creator, Jesus, 
so loved his creation that he became a created thing in order to save us, his creation. A reporter was interviewing a successful job counselor who had enjoyed enormous success working as a consultant for some major corporations. This man had earned a reputation for possessing a special knack for placing the right workers in the right place to do the most good. When he was asked for the secret of his success, the man replied, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. Most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough. But it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A leader will use privileges to help others and build an organization. A lesser man will only use privileges to promote himself. Now, I I think about that in relation to Jesus in this moment. I love Jesus in this exchange. (laughs) There is so much humility in what Jesus says. It's just drenched with humility if you look at it from a certain perspective. Jesus in here says that things have been granted to him. If we read back through it, we would see that God has granted me life. God has granted me judgment, that I, can, that I will be a judge. God has granted me authority. God has granted me these things. He's given them to me. Folks, these things were Jesus's before. Jesus was God. Jesus is equal with the Father in divine essence and power. But the amazing truth is, is that on his rescue mission to come save me and you, us, he laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. And God the Father gives them to him, grants them to him. As a man. Jesus, who emptied himself, laying aside his divine nature, became a man in a perfectly sinless body. And he used that body to associate with and serve the most lowly and unworthy beings. He took that body to the cross. The creator allowed creatures to beat him, mock him, hoist him up and murder him in a shameful public way, and in doing so, he took the punishment for our rebellion against the throne of God onto himself, the offended party taking the punishment that by rights should have gone to the offender, to put us at peace with God the Father. God's riches at Christ's expense are yours. This morning, if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation, Jesus became a son of man so that we might become children of God. And in our text for this morning, it speaks of Jesus being given authority to judge, given the power to restore life to the dead and to resurrect the dead on the last day. And what we need to see and understand is that these things have been granted to Jesus while he had them previously. But in coming to us as a man, he had willingly laid them aside. Do you see what he did with his privileges? (laughs) We are the incredible beneficiaries of his generosity, his love, his mercy, his grace. 
God in coming to us as a man, he willingly laid them aside, and now he looks to the Father and trusts to grant him these things. From all eternity, Jesus had the right to grant life. He had divine authority. In becoming a man like one of us, he willingly, voluntarily set aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And brothers and sisters, we need to see this. This is the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Adam and Eve, who were creatures, wanted to grasp, seize the place of the creator. They thought, I can be like God. And they fell. Jesus, who is the creator, who is God, said, I will become like one of you creatures. We puff up. We exaggerate. We grasp. He condescends. He lowers. He comes to our level. Pride is the problem. The pride of Adam, the pride of Satan, the pride that caused the fall, and the fix that we see here in such wonderful detail is the incredible humility of Jesus. In Philippians 2, it says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When it says there that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, it means it did not count it as something he should lay hold of. Not something he should cling to. He let it go for us. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty six, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And again in Philippians 2, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, let the humility that was in Christ be in his people also. Pride was the problem. This is the fix. And all of those who in humility bend the knee and say, I can't save myself. I have a sin problem. I've sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it says in Romans 3.23. And in Romans 6.23, but the wages of sin is death. Everybody who has fallen, which is all of us, has then a choice. Will we be like Adam and continue to try to save ourselves? which is, by the way, the scheme of every other world religion? Or will we say, I trust in a Savior, I won't try to save myself, which is what the Bible calls us to do. And for those who do that, who embrace the humility of Jesus by calling Him Lord, calling Him Savior, putting their trust in Him and what He did on the cross, It says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then in a wonderfully Advent Christian passage, he says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
So for those who have been made good by Jesus, whose lives have been transformed, and that the inner reality of that transformation is spilling forth into the life of a new creation, a life with new passions, new desires, a new zealous pursuit of God. On that last day, when we're in the tomb, we're going to hear that voice and we're going to come out. Some unto salvation and some unto judgment. And the dividing line, the dividing line in that A or B dynamic is whether we have put our trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Again, the gospel is not complicated. Thank God. It is not difficult to understand, but it is exact. The target at which we're aiming our lives as Christians is not the broadside of a barn. It's Jesus. And Jesus has said very plainly, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to death. It's an A or B thing. It's very simple. It's not complicated. Jesus died on the cross, taking all of our sins. But here in the midst of this, though, we do see truths that take us deeper. I'm challenged by the humility of Christ here in this passage. Is that kind of humility on display in me? (laughs) That's maybe a question I can't answer as well as you can, or really my wife can, right? But I think there are people in our lives who can tell us if that's true or not. I want to be humble like Jesus is. I want his glory to be reflected in me like how God was reflected perfectly in the creation at the first. I want to walk in the light of Scripture as an honest reflection of my Jesus. I want his humility to be put on display in me and in our church. So I encourage you, I challenge you this week to get into God's word and go deeper as a theologian. It's not whether you're a theologian, of course you are. But what kind of theologians are we? (laughs) Will I be a lazy theologian? Will I be poorly formed? Let's all go deeper this morning. And then let's bless others with what we come to know and understand and thereby live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for my church family this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way you have spoken here into the room. I thank you for the challenge, Lord, to graduate into solid food. There's an entry point here, and we're so glad that that's all that's necessary to enter into your promises. But beyond that, Lord, is a wonderfully exciting world of ideas, things to enjoy about you, to go deeper. God, you're so infinite, you're so vast, you're so excellent that 10,000 years from now in eternity, we will be no nearer in exhausting your newness. We'll never get tired of you, bored of you. We'll never get to the end or understand you completely. You are just so always full of surprises, excellent surprises, the best kind. And so, Father, as we head into your word this week, I pray, Lord, that you would meet us there in a wonderful way, speak powerfully into our lives, transform our inner, our inner man, our inner person. God, we invite you to come do a transforming work in our lives this week as we meet you in the midst of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're doing, Lord, that you would use them to bring many souls into the kingdom. Pray your protection over their home. 
And Father, we're so grateful for the time that we could spend here with them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, go in peace to serve the Lord. Have a great week.